Welcome to Constructing Mindsets, talking about the building blocks of our mental health. This week, we're discussing mental health from the perspective of a young person going through an engineering degree and transitioning into the workplace during a global pandemic. Mental health problems affect about one in 10 children and young people. They include depression, anxiety, and conduct disorder, and are often a direct response to what is happening in their lives. Alarmingly, however, 70% of children and young people who experience a mental health problem have not had appropriate interventions at a sufficiently early age. Today, we're welcoming Tom Edwards to share with us his story of an early diagnosis with mental health disorder at age 10 and how that manifested throughout his life at university and in the workplace today. Welcome, Tom. Hello, thank you for having me. Really great to have you on the podcast and thank you so much for kind of coming to share your story with us today. Um, so I guess start off with incredible, and we don't really talk about this much at all, which is highlighted in the stats I just outlined. Share with us your story and how you were diagnosed at a young age and actually like, what that meant for you. Yeah, so just as like a, in a bit of a nutshell then, I struggle predominantly with quite intense episodes of obsessive low self-esteem, um, which in itself is not a mental health condition, but these episodes trigger behaviours which are typical of someone with quite severe anxiety. Um, and that's what my diagnosis has always been. Um, and as Hannah just said, I was first diagnosed as quite a young child, formerly at 10, um, when I had really strong anxieties about being away from home and my parents, uh, which we think was triggered by my family's move to the Netherlands, uh, which as a child was a very significant change, and one which at the time I didn't have the emotional maturity to process effectively and naturally uh, latched on to my parents for security. Um, and that was made worse by quite a bad experience with a teacher when I first started school in the Netherlands and just left me feeling incredibly anxious about being away. Um, to, to put it explicitly, I was um, throwing up every day before school and in tears um, and then probably the best attempt that a child can have at a panic attack. Um, and this specific anxiety was something that I struggled with all through my early teen years. Uh, and I began to build up this internal dialogue that I wasn't good enough and was somehow wrong because of my anxiety, again, lacking the emotional maturity to deal with what I was feeling. Um, And at the age of 12 to 15, which is crucial development time for any child, I was left feeling like I somehow was different from everyone else in a bad way. Um, And despite being supported professionally, I just really struggled to grasp on what it was I was dealing with at that time. So you weren't immediately, you were going through, I guess, this struggle internally with yourself but you weren't actually immediately diagnosed with anything at that age is that right so i was picked up for the the behaviors and the um the well being unwell before school and the panic attacks and and finding it very difficult to be away from my parents yeah um but it wasn't directly linked with the move to the netherlands to begin with it was very much just a oh you know these are symptoms of anxiety in a child um but actually that's very hard to treat because like I keep saying children just lack the emotional maturity to deal with their emotions so it's very difficult um, to to approach that with a child and and us as adults although we find it difficult um, we we have a better understanding of what we're feeling and and how to process that um, and and help move on but as a child that's very difficult to do. Yeah it's really interesting because we don't really talk about the support that's there for children especially going you know through that such an important phase in their development that you mentioned and not only is that a mental health problem that you're dealing with within a very stressful environment of having just moved country but also you know 
you're going through your teenage years, there's a lot of physical development you're going through that affects your emotions. And there's also a lot going on at school in that in that sort of age with like friends and building relationships with people, which well, I guess only manifested itself with more difficulty and probably even made the anxiety more acute, I'm guessing, because of that stage in your life. Yeah, so it's, it's as I moved up through school um, and started to build some more kind of natural independence that I moved away from some of those kind of fear of being away from home anxieties. Um, but this internal dialogue that was continuing had flattened my self-esteem and manifested itself and still does um, in situations where I feel that my self-worth or self-esteem is defined. Um, and like I said, as I approached kind of A-levels and university applications, these very naturally became a focal point for how I defined my self-worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and in sixth form, I struggled with kind of persistent feelings that I wasn't doing enough. Um, and consequently wasn't good enough despite achieving well and getting involved with plenty of other extracurricular activities. Yeah. Um, and in my first AS level exam in year 12, I actually had a panic attack and collapsed in the middle of the exam hall and had to resit the exam straight after. Wow. Um, I just felt completely helpless and that I must be a failure. Um, and it was also around that time that I was opening up to my family and friends about my sexuality as well. Yeah. Um, and although I was met with huge support from everyone, it was just another thing to process all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it sounds like everything sort of collided at once, but then also over a period of time you get the build-up because you haven't necessarily been talking about something. Um, yeah. When you do release that and start talking about that, even though people are supportive, it can still be incredibly overwhelming because it's like a massive sigh of relief that you've Absolutely. done that and been through that. Um and I guess during that time, as you progressed through, um, you know, your A-levels and started university applications, did you start thinking about any support or coping mechanisms that worked for you? Or were you sort of kind of stabbing in the dark, just trying to get through every day, you know, as best you could? Yeah, and that that's really it. Um, yeah. I think I'd identified there was a problem, but I was still not at the age where I felt that I could... Um, or not that I felt, it's not that I didn't feel I could do something about it, um, but I just didn't know what support was available. And obviously living abroad, um, I was very well supported at school, um, but not professionally and not receiving the kind of direct help for, for what I had struggled with as a child and just felt incredibly alone with that. Yeah. Um, do you think that's because our, I guess, health system doesn't particularly reflect the needs of children in this space very well or do you think it was missed somewhere else like where where do you see the support was potentially lacking that could be improved I think from my perspective it was probably to do with the fact that um you know my parents were fantastic and they did all that they could to support me Mm. Um, but we lived in a new country um with a language that they weren't familiar with with a healthcare system that they weren't familiar with um and actually, that's very then difficult um, to try and arrange that whilst they're also trying to you know, deal with their own lives and new jobs and new lives. Um, but I did, I did receive professional support as a child. Um, but I think it's just very difficult to engage with children on mental health because it takes a level, like I say, of yeah. emotional maturity and understanding to be able to process those feelings that is just very difficult to do as a child. Yeah, yeah, completely understandable. Um, and I guess that's probably why, you know, as, as the stat at the beginning, only 70%, well, 70% of children, and young people who do experience mental health problem haven't had appropriate interventions at a sufficiently early age. 
And that also might be due to the fact that we can't really identify what is appropriate at an early age because it's really hard to find something that will work. So I'm sure it's it's an incredibly difficult place to be and, and to try and work within. And then I guess going on to university, whereby that's a huge life step. That is um, a, another huge level of independence. You're going to be away from home. Um, and then you said you're constantly striving for perfection, which at university is probably more difficult because it's very unstructured. So I'm quite interested to hear how that transition was to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I obviously made it through sixth form um, and still managed to secure my place at Southampton to study civil engineering. Um, and actually, I found that breaking away from the fairly intense school atmosphere and coming to university um, helped me provide, uh, helped me with some perspective, though. And although, you know, like we say, a whole new group of people offered more people that I almost felt I needed to prove to, actually, it was refreshing to meet people from different backgrounds and with different upbringings. Uh, and I didn't necessarily find myself comparing to anyone directly. Um, I did, however, maintain this thought that's you know, to do with my anxiety as a child, that everyone must already be better than me and that I had to work even harder to keep up. Um, and that's essentially what I did to begin with. And that's what was driving me. Um, but I did, over those first few years at university, start to identify and recognise um, that my self-worth was very, still very much built on my academics, yeah. um, and I will admit to working incredibly hard to satisfy that. Um, but all of that still was quite internal, um, so that was a, a drive that I felt I needed to do that to be best, rather than necessarily being external, I need to compete with everyone else. Mm. Um, I think that's really... And I think it impacts upon a lot of people to a very different degree, but especially when you're growing up, um, and this goes on through to, you know, early stage of your career, there is a lot of, we place a lot of expectation and pressure on ourselves based on what we want other people to think about us. And it's constant, this, you know, extrinsic value versus intrinsic value. And actually, how do you define your self-worth, which is really interesting and also it's even if you're aware of it it's really difficult to say oh no I better think about my you know intrinsic value and what my self-worth is rather than what other people think of me and needing to demonstrate that because you know as it's human nature to to want to be liked by other people to want to impress other people and and it's difficult to steer yourself away from that even though you know it's not necessarily the right thing for you and your mental health and actually what is valued um so yeah I I completely relate with exactly what you're saying Louise I know we've spoken about this before in the podcast about we're often our own worst critics and how that impacts on our self-esteem interesting to hear from your perspective how you've seen that materialize in the workplace and also kind of through your own personal experience yeah so it's definitely not just something at student and level kind of academia level that we're our own worst critic I, I think we see it and especially now we're all working from home people's inability to switch off from the workplace because they can always do more and I think people have that feeling they always need to do just half an hour more or just an hour more just do this just do that because it's not good enough so far so I just need to keep going but unfortunately that just then can have a massive impact on it can lead to burnout as we've talked about before Um, but it's also we'll never meet our own high expectations and I think our industry is particularly bad for that because we're always striving for the next deadline the next project the next project win Uh, we don't want to be the project that fails everything like that and it just builds and builds and builds and yet the more we go through it instead of perfecting the ability to stick within our hours and 
do things more efficiently we see it as oh well we have extra hours to do even better and we keep raising the bar on ourselves. and unfortunately because of doing that we never reach the level we set for ourselves. Mm. and then that can have a massive impact on self-esteem because if you set yourself a deadline that's just not achievable you're never going to have the feeling of success that helps you be more productive at work you end up having feelings of failure and feelings like you're not good enough when actually if you ask someone else in your team they're probably saying you're far exceeding what anyone else would expect from you and yes we all have bad days where that might not happen but actually most occasions you will find that we're all pushing ourselves far above what we'd expect from someone else Um, and I know that's something that I try to kind of think about myself if I put a deadline on my own time to achieve a task I try to think would I expect that from someone else Um, and if I wouldn't expect it from someone else why do I expect myself to do it in that period of time Mm. so I think that's something we're all very prone to it's not just meeting coursework deadlines and exam deadlines at university it is throughout our careers and it's definitely something we can all work on but like you say it's very hard to switch off that kind of inner perfectionism to get something done yeah and also I think in at university and in the workplace you've got you do you do create your own social sphere and, and challenge internally with other people you know there's a competitiveness element I think there is with a lot of people and um, the way that they approach things Tom I don't know if you had a with the perfectionist side of you if that also results in are you a competitive person did that also drive you in certain areas of of your time at university i think my my perfectionism has always been internally driven okay um, and it's it all revolves around like i keep going back to but my childhood anxiety of thinking that i wasn't good enough meant that i needed i felt that i needed to prove um that i was good um, well, I felt that I needed to be the best at everything and not because I wanted to be better than other people um, but because I believed that, that was the only way to prove that despite my anxiety I was still good enough Yeah. Um, so for me it was never about competing directly with other people it was about just being good enough to kind of be valued at the same level Yeah. Um, and I think that's where the perfectionist behaviours come from is that I, I ended up thinking I had anxiety as a child um, that was wrong and I felt really um, uh, I was that was a big challenge um, and then ended up uh, feeling that I needed to to be perfect at everything else to almost make up for that yeah so I find that really interesting because it kind of connects back to the stigma we all find around mental health it's as if the mental health to yourself and you didn't necessarily vocalize this was kind of a defining part of your life and you had to prove that it wasn't Um, and I think that's what we find around the stigma is especially in the workplace people won't talk about mental health because they think it will affect their career progression and affect the work they're given and people won't think they're capable of doing something when actually from what you've said you're outright proving that it doesn't define what you can do but that inner voice is telling you that it might Um, and you're fighting against it so I think that's a really really fascinating point to raise that I don't think we talk about enough stigma isn't necessarily what other people think of us we might have our own stigma on ourselves around mental ill health and then that means we're fighting against it to try and prove that it's not a defining point of our life and yeah I just thank you for raising that because I don't think we've ever openly discussed it in that way before Um, and you're certainly not the only one I'm sure that thinks that way so yeah that's that's really interesting yeah, and it's definitely something that I spent a long time working to break down. And it's why I talk so openly about my mental health, is because I do not believe that it defines me at all. Um, it's something that I live with and, and process and work through. Um, 
but it does not define how well I can do. And I have proved that and continue to, um, you know, moving away from, from school and through university. Um, it's just now about <laughs> believing that ourselves yeah. um, as well as um, other people believing it in us. Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really great, really great quote. And also something that I think we can all take away from this and we're, we're talking about um, mental health and the stigma in ourselves. So really great point there. And I think, so during your university, your time at university, you had a, a placement in the workplace. And how did you find that transition and that part of your university experience? Yeah, so at the end of my second year, uh, I took a pause for my degree to do a placement year with WSP, who were sponsoring me through university. Um, and having already done an eight-week placement the previous summer, I was fairly confident approaching my year. Um, but very quickly, I felt a disconnect between what was expected of me at work and what I wanted from myself, um, the latter being <laughs> a lot more onerous. Um, I was commuting over an hour both ways to and from work. And I know many people do or did that regularly anyway. Um, but that had a big impact on me as a new starter. Um, I couldn't really find my place in the office, and, and not because my teams weren't lovely, uh, but because I was there for longer than an eight-week placement, but not permanently, and I fell in between this weird gap of student placement and graduate engineer, yeah. um, but not receiving anywhere near the same support as a graduate. Um, and kind of, again, I, I felt quite alone in that situation and even though I was living with an amazing group of friends um, who were also students there was just a disconnect between I wasn't quite involved enough with um, work uh, to feel the drive and, and commitment there but I wasn't a student and, and as someone who's very driven by my goals and what it is I want to achieve it was very difficult to maintain that when I didn't have a clear um, continuation I knew that I was there for a year but then I was going back to university um, and I found that quite overwhelming um, and in response those kind of perfectionist um, behaviours are what came through and I felt therefore that I needed to do everything perfectly um, to prove that I was you know, worthwhile being there. Um, so did that result in overworking then? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was just in incredibly critical of myself and my abilities at work. And, and towards the end of the placement, I was having panic attacks on the train to work in the office. Um, and my GP ended up recommending that I take a couple of weeks away from work um, to get some more professional support. Uh, and, and I did manage to get back and finish the placement. Um, and I know that despite the challenges, um, the experience was invaluable uh, for who I am now because it was at that time of feeling so low um, and not progressing that really triggered, triggered me into some strong career and life goals yeah. um, that I don't think I would otherwise have made. Yeah. Um, and I think it's that that gave me the drive to be where I want to be both in my career and life. Um, That's a brilliant point. And actually, we've discussed this before with a few people who've come on the podcast about how when they've gone through whether it's been a, a breakdown or an anxiety um, or panic attack or gone through anxiety very seriously or a serious period of depression they have come out of it with a, a slightly different perspective on what they want how they frame themselves and their career and their home lives which actually has led them now to to have made choices which they think are much more beneficial and they're in a much better place than they would have been if they hadn't have gone through that really dark period 
Um, so it's just really interesting how also those times, and we do speak about, you know, whether they're building resilience or it's it's that, but it's also about how they make us see the world slightly differently because we've been through something that's been so difficult to actually come out of the other side. Um, and it, it really builds our strength and, and how we see things and what, what is value and what we apply ourselves to. So, yeah, yeah. it's really interesting and relatable. Um, so guess going back to your your placement did you you obviously went through that took time off work did you finish on a high after you did go back and and sort of end that placement year so that you went back to uni feeling fresh and exhilarated or was there a bit of a difficulty transitioning back to university considering you'd been in the workplace for a year so I think I was always looking forward to being back at university because actually I'd proved to myself that um, I was comfortable in that situation and, you know, I was, I kind of returned with a, um, a strong mindset to finish my master's and it, I knew it was what I wanted to do. Um, but off the back of the placement, I continued with some professional support. I just really started to break down what my self-worth was based on mm. um, and, you know, adjust that away from being solely academics and career related to capture so many of the other amazing things I was doing um, and had going on in my life too. Um and I think it's, it's from that that, you know, I spent the last year of my degree in some of the best mental health that I've ever had um, and, and found this genuine internal belief in myself and what I was doing. Um, and, and probably unsurprisingly, the shift in focus away from my academics saw me achieve probably the most I had done, both with extracurricular um, relationships, friends. Um, but also, funnily enough, I scored my highest marks in those final years of my degree. Um having moved that mindset away from purely academic focused. Mm. Um, and I think that's because I was no longer defining my self-worth on my academics. It was there as something that I was passionate about and driven to do because I, I value it and not because it um, defines me. Yeah, that's it's really interesting how that shifted your perception on your self-worth and how do you define yourself by. Um, so I guess then that set you up, you know, got brilliant marks feeling like your mental health was actually the best it had been to apply for a role in the workplace after university and then how did you go about doing that considering what you'd experienced in your placement year were you a bit nervous or or did you feel like yeah absolutely I'm I'm ready to go and wanting to get stuck into the workplace yeah so completely I, I finished this placement um and I, I went back to university did my third year and at the end of my third year I went back and did another summer placement um so I was still working for WSP um but within a different team in a different office um and I approached it with a much healthier attitude towards what was expected of me um and I I loved it and it reminded me again that engineering is what I wanted to do and that I was good at it um and that it wasn't my lack of ability that was that was um, affecting me on my placement year, but my attitude and perspective. Um, and having been through that, I could approach that placement with uh, a much, much healthier attitude, like I said. Um, and that has followed through now to my graduate role, which is with that team um, to continue that, that approach. Um, um, and Louise, I guess in a very different way now in the workplace and as Tom has been through you're entering the workplace in a time of covid everything's done virtually it's very difficult to build relationships with people 
how can we help to manage each other's mental health and support each other in what is very in a very different world at the moment and will be for you know the foreseeable it's really interesting that one because i think when we sit next to people in an office we can notice when one bad day slips into two slips into three etc we can notice if people like tom are pushing themselves maybe outside of what's comfortable and what's achievable um and we can see physical signs of someone struggling and now we're all voices on the end of a phone like how we do this podcast and like how we meet all our colleagues now it's a lot harder to pick up in a five minute conversation if someone's struggling so big things will be to check in on on new starters especially because they won't have built the relationships that we may have to support us if we know we need to reach out for help um, be, in a, uh, be aware of kind of what support's available to people so if you do notice they're struggling and you don't know how to address it then you can just say look if you're struggling here's something to help you and if you're not you know keep it for future in case you are um, and it is very hard to start that conversation and a lot of companies now have mental health first aiders in place to do that so I will happily approach someone on behalf of someone else if they've noticed it if they're not sure how to do it um and it's just that constant checking in. I don't think I realised how much a video call makes a difference to just a phone call because you can see someone, you get a bit more of that human connection um, and you can definitely pick up a bit more if they are struggling. But the things like Tom said, like if he had a panic attack at work now, he's probably sat at home where no one can see him. No one would know what's happened. And you don't have to let your colleagues know, which means there's no one there to intervene and say, look, do you need professional support? And I don't think there's any shame or stigma in going to get the professional support because like you say, Tom, you get much better outcomes. Actually, productivity isn't just based on hard work. It's based off of hard work, exercising, eating right, getting the support you need and having social connection. Um, And like you've pointed out, your grades got better when you focused on something that wasn't just the work. And I think we struggle to point that out to our colleagues now we're all sat behind computer screens yeah um so it's really important to just remind colleagues if you notice they're online at 7 a.m and still online at 7 p.m just double check oh did you have a really nice long lunch break today for your long hours mm-hmm. yeah they might that's say a really yes, good point or they might say no if they say no ask them why not breaks are so important for both our productivity and the business so businesses should support that but also just so we can remain happy this time is really tough for everyone it's a pandemic and it's winter and yeah it's raining um it's not like the first lockdown where we had lovely clear blue skies and we could go for a walk and it was gorgeous sunshine this time it's darker and it's wet and it is a lot harder for a lot of people this time around um so just check in on people it's really simple check in on someone you haven't spoken to in six months it's just has to be hi how are you and it might spark a conversation with someone who needs that support so yeah um, Absolutely. And I think, you know, you you mentioned they're checking in, but I think what my team do so well is that we we have a regular catch up. So twice a week, we all get together as a team uh, and we all talk about what we're doing, what we've got planned for the weekend, completely um, unwork related. Yeah. Um, And that is what has made my transition um, as smooth and, and as healthy as it has been. Uh, and that all falls to a line manager that is incredibly engaging and, and has um, one of the best attitudes I've seen towards mental well-being in the workplace um, in all of the placements I've, I've worked in. Um, and, and he organizes those calls. Um, and even to the point where 
the week before last, we had a, a client deadline on a Friday, and Thursday is our weekly um, hour-long catch-up. We all get together, and despite that, he was like, I know you've got a deadline tomorrow, but this has to take priority, because if we don't give this um, the same level of priority, then we're saying that mental well-being isn't as important. And I think it's that attitude, and, and for him as a you know senior business person to, to say that and say, I want you to come to this call, um, not, not necessarily prioritize the deadline for this hour um it's that attitude that That is make the healthy workplace really powerful and really great that you do have leaders in the business actually like living and breathing what they actually should be doing rather than doing lip service to it and putting a meeting in the diary and okay well that's there to show that I do do things around well-being but if they're living it and they're making sure that you do as well I think that's so powerful I think we do underestimate people in the business carrying the right culture around mental health as well because you know that that in itself a story you've told there is exactly when I think you know you're in the right team with the right boss you know who, who wants to make an impact in the right way and it makes you feel actually although I've got that deadline tomorrow I completely agree with what he's saying and yeah I, I should give my all to this yeah yeah and you know that that hour where we all got together in chat probably helped the rest of us be um, even more productive that afternoon than if we just powered through the whole day. And and that's what kind of epitomizes well-being really, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, taking that time makes you better and you, you don't need to use all of that time for work um, or, be, or be working constantly, I should say. Um, having those breaks is important. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, well, I think sort of we're closing up on the conversation now I think we've covered some really interesting points um I particularly like the point you made around you know how we define our self-worth and I think if I'm going to take anything away from this discussion today it's just about thinking how I do that and and how I think about my self-worth in in relation to what I want out of my life and not just defining it by one particular factor you know there's so much more to our lives than just work (laughs) you know there's there's family there's friends, there's exciting hobbies that we get involved with. And there's so much to be able to get involved with and define ourselves by that's not just, you know, our next uh, rung on the career ladder or our next life, big life move. Um, And I think that's really important. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I think it's a really powerful one and one which has definitely given us a new perspective for the podcast. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, no, thank you very much. It's really a big pleasure to be able to share it um, so thank you for listening brilliant thank you and if anyone has any any feedback or any questions um please do drop us an email uh, constructing mindsets at gmail.com and please do remember to rate review and subscribe the podcast and thank you very much for listening mm-hmm.